This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Joining us on that issue and a few others is economics professor from uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. He is Eric Camps. Great to have you on. It is a beautiful Monday morning, Greg. Something like that. Um, <laughs> what uh, What do you think about the latest Stats Canada report on inflation? Most people are thinking we hold the line here. Is there any argument to drop it by a quarter percent? Not a chance. I think that Statistics Canada came out and gave um, a ridiculous notion to the Canadian public. And I think Canadians are smarter than to buy this. They said that Inflation is up 3.4% thanks to gas prices and sticky prices at the grocery store. Greg, this has nothing to do with gas prices. They've fallen for five consecutive months. Inflation in our economy today is simply driven by high prices for groceries, natural gas, personal and corporate taxes, and what we call shelter inflation, which is rising rent and mortgage costs. If you want some secondary factors, you can throw in fuel oil, uh, but not the kind that goes into your car. Sum it up. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister, for mishandling the supply chain in general and almost what really is a criminal abuse of our natural resource sector. But do not buy for a second, Greg. This has nothing to do with gas prices. This has everything to do with mortgage and interest on rent. Um, If we cut, if we did cut rates, would that be a huge mistake? Let's, for the sake of uh, hypotheses, say it goes to 4.7%. Point, uh, 4.75% on Wednesday. It's not going to. You and I agree on that. What would be the what would be the the, the reaction? What would be the, the the consequences of that? Well, to me, nothing. It wouldn't be bad at all. And in fact, I think it's not a bad idea to start trickling it down. The problem is the Bank of Canada is on a holy war to get to 2%. And they believe that anything other than this 2% number is just going to put another flash freeze onto inflation. They say that if we drop this thing to, to anything less than 2%, anything more, sorry, than 2%, spending is just going to ramp up again and people are going to start running to the bank and borrowing money and spending money. And I think that this is ridiculous. And I'll give you one example mm-hmm. why. They said that prices rose 4.7% at a grocery store. You show me the person that's walking into a grocery store and only paying 4.7% more for such luxuries as fruit and vegetables and meat. Everybody knows this number is much higher. The bank is is out of the mm. closet, Greg. Until they hit that 2% magic number, rates are going nowhere. Eric Camps, our guest in Toronto today on this Monday morning. Um, you've seen your fair share of um, intergovernmental squabbles about who should pay for what. So will there be a winner at the end of this? Friday is the expected date where the city says we have to get a commitment of federal money uh, to deal with um, a a migrant issue and to deal with refugee issues. Um, Is the federal government going to blink and just hand over $250 million by Friday? What's your feel for it? Again, I don't think there's a chance in hell that's going to happen. I think that well, everyone knows how I feel about our federal government, but in this case, well, we know I how you feel about the mayor as well. So I don't know who, which side you're going to pick on this one. <laughs> well, I'm going to actually take the federal government, which means that hell might freeze over today. But the point is, is that the gang that can't shoot straight down at City Hall has done nothing to open up the hood of our city and try to find some inefficiencies. We know that there are many, many, many to be had, but they seem to want to just tax and spend and throw money at a situation. Well, guess what? There's no money anymore. The city is broke. So they're looking at the federal government going, can you do our job for us? And I think the federal government is going to look right back at Olivia Chow and for the first time in a long time, be correct and say, no, thank you. Do your job. Call us back.
Yeah, there's talk even um, in the United States about holding a national referendum. I saw Chicago City Council. Chicago's declared themselves a sanctuary city, and they've got a lot of people showing up. Though Chicago's not near a border, um, they're finding people are flying directly into O'Hare Airport. They're being bussed up from these southern states, and people are excoriating these these governors um, south in, in you know Texas and New Mexico. If we held a national referendum about what we should do about asylum seekers and refugees, I'm, I'm not sure some people would like the results. Oh, people would not like the results at all. And we would seem like one big xenophobic nation. And right now, you know, people haven't been watching what's going on. But if they have, even casually, they know you bring up Chicago. The United States is in a very good economic position right now. I wouldn't call it a boom by any stretch. But as the election ramps up, all of their macroeconomic indicators are starting to point to the positive, whereas ours are pointing to zero at best, negative at most. There's a lot to envy about the United States right now, and Canadians hate that, but it's just a reality. Um, I got a minute here. You saw Ron DeSantis drop out yesterday and, and the economic implications of, uh, of a, another Biden v. Trump rematch, and then either somebody who's going to be 86 at the end of the four years or somebody who's going to be 84 at the end of the four years. I know it's easy to say you follow American politics a lot. It's easy to say we can do better. We should do better. America hasn't done better. It looks like they're picking these two guys again. You know, my father's 80. We don't let him use the TV converter. I don't understand in a country of 400 million people, is this actually the best you can do is have a party at the retirement house for your two leaders? I can't, I really, I cannot believe that we are standing here today looking at another Trump versus Biden. I mean, like you said, DeSantis, younger, smarter, more able. Do I think he's perfect? No, but I think at least he's somebody who is a a person of the future, a person of today. These are two people that are the day before yesterday, not only in their age, but in their ideals. And I'm not just saying ageism. I don't think it's bad to be old. I'd like to be old one day. But at some point, everybody has to know their limitations and know when they've hit their peak. And anyone who's heard these two people ever Mm. give a speech knows they are long past their peak. Democrats, Republicans, get in a room separately and find somebody Mm. under the age of 80 to lead your party. Because right now it's not leadership. It's yesterday ship. And it's kind of nauseating for a country the world looks at as a referee. Hear that. Um, Yeah, we tend not to elect to anybody over the age of 65. Paul Martin is the oldest prime minister of the last 100 years. And when he was elected, I should point out, and he was elected at 64 years and 10 months. Um, So we and he'd waited quite a long time uh, for Jean Chrétien to to want to give up the chair. We got to keep moving here. Thanks so much for the time this morning, Eric. Stay healthy, Greg. Eric Kim, uh, economics professor from Toronto Metropolitan University. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We're very pleased to be joined by Toronto City Councillor Gord Perks. It's great to have you on. Thanks for being with us on a Monday. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's a busy week uh, this week. Um, Friday, it sounds like to me, Friday is sort of decision day for the federal government and the city has to retool the budget that they would like to present to the public if the city doesn't hear from the federal government. What's your confidence level that we can get this hashed out uh, and the federal government can can make sure there isn't a, a greater tax increase, Gord? I, I mean, Greg, I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, I just know we, we have to have it. You know, I'm crossing my fingers, crossing my toes because we just don't want a city where we have to cut another quarter billion dollars or add another 6% in property tax. 
Yeah, Shelly Carroll kind of documented over the weekend that, in essence, you're cut into the bone and essential services end up getting cut. So it's either pay a little more tax. And, and again, this is a city that's trying to get a lot of essential services, transit for one, back on their feet. And they simply can't afford uh, to see them cut and, and see them less uh, less efficient than they are right now. Correct? Yeah, no, we're, we're at the point where uh, things start to break and break badly. Uh, already, if you're a regular transit rider, you know the service isn't what it used to be. If we've got to take a, another big chunk out of that, we, we're we just like, well, I guess there's no bus service this time of day. Like, it's that bad, Greg. Shelly Carroll referenced some uh, inefficiencies that were found for those that, that didn't pay, that you were able to save money on. For those that weren't paying as much attention in the last couple of weeks, where did the city find ways to save money in, in the budget Olivia Chow presented about a week and a half ago, Gord? Well, I mean, the main thing we do, Greg, and we do this every year, it's worth remembering, is we tell the staff, you know, go take a look. Uh, you Currently, if it's uh, three guys to do a job, can, do, can two guys do it? Is there technology we can use to save money? And we saved about $600 million going through that line by line by line uh, this year. And what's the so you mentioned the 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 inefficiencies are there? Are they from essential services? Are they just things that are duplicated? Are they things like IT? What 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 kind of departments do you find that kind of savings in? Well, it's every department actually has to come back uh, come back with some proof that they have done their best to to find anything. Uh, to, you know, we've already long ago uh, stopped staff from going on trips and and. Mm going to conferences, uh, as I said, we've all, we keep every year we ask if there's a given task filling a pothole. It used to be a four-person crew, now it's three. Uh, on and on down the list. Um, we, frankly, one thing that I'm worried about this year, we're not doing as much maintenance as we've done in other years, uh, and we're going to have to catch that up quickly or we're going to have roofs starting to leak. Yeah. Gord Perks is our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. One thing I thought was notable last week, and um, I, I thought it's good that there's transparency here on this front, is uh, a, a few Liberal MPs were documenting, well, the city of Toronto asked us for $97 million in the summer in July. But what wasn't documented through August and September was they've only paid $35 million of that. Um, I thought that was important to get out there, given there was a little bit of braggadocio from a couple of the MPs. I can't lump them all under the same umbrella. But a couple of the MPs were documenting, yeah, the city asked for $97 million. And I'm thinking, yeah, and you've only paid about 30% of that. Yeah, well, and then <laughs> guess what? It, it's actually costing us a quarter of a billion a year. I don't think people understand the scale of expansion that we have had in our shelter system in the city of Toronto in the last three years. It's pretty much doubled. We are now host to, I mean, I hate to use that word, we are now taking in close to 10,000 people every night who do not have a roof over their head. It, it's, it's just such a failure of federal housing policy. It's such a failure of ho- housing and immigration policy and refugee policy. I don't know what a Liberal MP has to brag about, but it's certainly not their funding of the city of Toronto. I'm glad you say that. What I wanted, what I do want to hear the mayor say, and, and it's not like you can elbow her and say, say this, but you just mentioned immigration. I rarely hear her say that. I do think there needs to be a, a reframe and a rethink in terms of federal immigration policies. Lay oh, that right. out so that cities know what, what the rules are, right? 
Yeah, it's great we have people coming here. Believe me, I mean, we've got labor shortages all over the world, and, and we also have a humanitarian obligation to people fleeing mm-hmm. violence. So I, I, that's all great stuff. The problem is, if you're going to have that policy, you've got to have something at the back end to help people get settled. And that is not a municipal responsibility. We don't have the tax set up for that. We don't get the income tax. We don't get sales tax. So, you know, set it up. And then you get successful people who themselves become taxpayers who make us all wealthier. But if you just say, welcome to Canada, here's a sleeping bag, which is what's happening to too many people, you're not you're, you're making everyone miserable and poorer. So I know no crystal ball, but let's let's revisit the first question. Do you have a level of confidence that the right thing will get done here by the feds? Uh, you're going to hold me to the answer. <laughs> For once. <laughs> I, I, I honestly, Greg, uh, it has to happen. That's the way I think about it, right? There's no if. Mm. We, it has to happen. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. All right, international students are a massive story right now in, well, I would say, in Ontario for sure, but probably across the country. So much so that the Minister of Immigration, uh, Mark Miller, will potentially be capping international students for Ontario schools. Now, some of the universities don't love that idea, and many of the uh, crimes, if you will, aren't being perpetuated in terms of numbers and diploma and degree mills by universities, but more community colleges and some smaller schools. Darshan Maharaja is joining us, a writer and political commentator, and he's been very vocal on this front and very educated and has done his research as well. Darshan, it's great to have you on Toronto today. Thank you for having me. Hey, you've written about this for a good chunk of time now. I followed you for a while, and and you've been on this issue before. A lot of people in the mainstream were. What did you start to notice in in the last two, three years about international students, how many numbers there were, and how what an unfair thing we were doing, allowing them to come here and not not, not having a chance to really succeed? Actually, I noticed this all the way six years back, uh, Um, When I noticed that some of the community colleges, the new incoming uh, student batch uh, comprised about 75% of international students. And at that time, my first question was, where are they going to live? And I live in Brampton. I Mm -hmm. saw, uh, you know, basements being rented out uh, to a bunch of students at a time. And the going rate at the time was $260 per head. And uh, now it is $500 per head for a shared mattress. So two guys are sharing a mattress and uh, the mattress space is yielding $1,000 a month in rent for the homeowner. What responsibility do these colleges have? Um, It's tough to walk back what they've already done. But we also, you know, as I was just saying, even about something completely different, um, it's better to, uh, you know, move forward and make sure that mistakes don't continue to get made. Uh, whether we're going to hold anybody accountable for what happened four or five, six years ago or not. But we need to move on this and move on this fast, don't we? This is a crisis in our province. Absolutely. My honest opinion is that the uh, policy as it uh, functions now is a stinking pile of garbage. It needs to be shut down completely. Then we build a new one from scratch where we build safeguards uh, against all the kinds of malpractice and malfeasance that we have seen. And it is at every single level throughout the chain, all the way from India where unscrupulous agents, licensed or unlicensed, uh, are engaging in malpractices. Even many of the prospective students, because their goal is not to particularly study in a line of uh, work, 
they just want to come to Canada and gain uh, permanent residency. So there is malfeasance there. Then, uh, you know, Canadian government is issuing visas uh, without regard for how it's going to impact the Canadian society or the students. And then provincial governments are licensing colleges without regard for whether they have any worthwhile uh, curriculum or not. Kids are left to fend for themselves. Yeah. There is no housing. They are living 10, 15 in a basement. They are employed for minimum wages and being exploited by their employers. You, you wrote this a few days ago, and I can't tell you how much I agreed with it, Darshan. It is in the nature of things that when Canadians raise objections to a policy and system, and you referenced the Toronto Star, um, they would make it about people and implied racism. The headline, International Students' Latest Villain in Canada's Failed Housing Strategy. And I agree with you. No one's pointing the finger at students. We're pointing the finger at the bureaucracy, the government policy, and the schools themselves. I don't know anybody that's looking at individual students and going, you're the bad guys and girls here. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, there has been some kind of change, if I may call it improvement, in the last six months. Because six months ago, it was impossible to bring this up in uh, public. Now, you know, if I mean, without being accused of racism. But uh, now at least we can talk about it in public and people who uh, bring in racism are laughed at, basically. So we have made that much improvement. Well, and I'm not a believer. The the funny thing is, um, you and I aren't of the same uh, racial background, but I never think it's fair that you should be accused of something that I could say, but you can't, or you can say something that I can't. I agree with you. We're starting to get to that point where this is about practicality and about being pro-immigrant and giving these students a fighting chance when they get here, and they haven't had that. No, they don't. I mean, they are being exploited left, right and center. Uh, they spend, you know, years and years here without making an inch of progress in their lives. It, the minister openly says that this is about cheap labor. So it's not about yeah. education. It's not about making their lives better. It's not about making Canada better. It's, it's absolutely about, uh, you know, pumping up the bottom line of big box stores and other employers. So I got to go, but what do we do? A hard cap? Do you want to see a hard cap on all universities and colleges and saying it's got to be a proportion of what your community can handle, a proportion of your overall um, undergrad population? What do you hope? Well, my solution would have two components. One, as you said, the hard cap of 10% of the total student body, maximum 10% can be international. And there would be a cap on the tuition revenue, 30%. Whichever is hit first, you stop accepting international students at that institution, number one. Number two, private career colleges should not be in the business of bringing international students over because that is where the maximum malpractice is. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Joining us to discuss CBS reporter in New Hampshire uh, this morning is Jake Rosen. Jake, thanks for making time for us here in Toronto. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Was this a, a shocking development? If I told you this Friday night at dinner time, we were having a nice steak or something together, and I said, DeSantis is going to drop out before the primary even happens. W- would that have been surprising? You know, I think just kind of how we've seen the last week or so unfold has kind of been a little surprising. But I think the writing was on the wall. I was at the last DeSantis event in New Hampshire. Uh, his staff rushed him out of the room. It was a little bit more of a reflective speech talking about a little bit more about the future of the country, but his, his wife and one of his kids still made an appearance. 
there were still about 100 plus people in the room there to hear him speak, along with some fervent report, uh, supporters that mm. I've seen up here. And, you know, I think with Chris Christie dropping out and Vivek Ramaswamy dropping out, the writing was on the wall for at least up here in New Hampshire. You know, DeSantis just needed to do better in Iowa, and that didn't happen. Uh, and his message just doesn't resonate up here. If DeSantis were to run again for president in the 2028 election, is he better off than a year ago because more people know him or is he worse off because he's kind of got an L on his record now? That's why a lot of people thought maybe he won't run if Trump was a third thing to run. He ran anyway and now he's out already. What do you think? Huh. That's a good question. I I would say it depends on what DeSantis does going into the election. Uh, You know, he's got to still govern a state. He's got three years left as governor of Florida. He's got to continue to kind of build this firebrand, you know, conservative movement that, you know, taking on the culture war uh, from a position of kind of small government, which is kind of, a, you know, a little bit ironic for sure. Uh, but I think at the same time, I, I think it depends how well he does in reuniting himself with former President Trump. Can he get back in his good graces? Trump said that the nickname that he had been called the entire trail was retired yesterday because DeSantis had endorsed him, so he didn't need to keep using it. But at the same time, is, is Ron DeSantis going to be someone who's campaigning and being a surrogate for Trump on the campaign trail? Or is he just going to endorse him and go back to maybe the shadows of, of Florida for a little bit while this race kind of plays out? I, I think that makes the most difference. Because then in a couple of years, people can look back at him and say, well, he was really with Trump the whole time. He just did. Yeah. That. You know, and I think that that's the big thing. It, it, it strikes me he's not a logical vice presidential candidate uh, for Trump. Nobody thinks that, do they? He'll just go back and govern Florida until there's the potential to run again, won't he? I wouldn't rule it out with the former president, but it's not seem like that right now. Um, I just think the attacks on, on, you know, on DeSantis and his family from some Trump allies, they were pretty brutal. And, and the reality is DeSantis has a very powerful position right now still as a you know, governor of a really big state, Donald Trump's home state. Um, and I, I think he still has his reputation. I think it just, you know, he, he got exposed a little bit for some weaknesses in the decisions he made in his campaign. Um, going after Disney, hiring the super PAC or using the super PAC that really had more drama than obviously it did reward. It was a lot of money spent yeah. for a second, you know, second place finish in Iowa and no votes cast in New Hampshire. Impossible to tell right now, Jake, but is this uh, is this good news or bad news for the Democrats, um, given that the, there's not a lengthy process here? It looks like a fairly united Republican Party instead of a divided one. But does that let them plan an attack if they're running Joe Biden and Kamala Harris again? Does this give them more time than, say, if this was decided in March or April to plan their their attack to keep Joe Biden in the White House? You know, um, from our reporting at CBS, the the Democrats and the, the Biden campaign, since they've really got, you know, their you know, feet back under them and they're running uh, this race, they've pointed at Donald Trump the entire time. There was about a week or two where they started to come out against Nikki Haley over, you know, New Year's, uh, Christmas time. Um, but re- and that was when she had some momentum, packing big rooms. You know, Trump's numbers had kind of stagnated a little bit, but she just didn't get the results she needed. So I, I think Democrats you know, expected this. And I think it makes their case a little bit easier. If you look at all the polling, any other candidate in the GOP for the GOP nomination uh, does better against Joe Biden. Trump does not. And I think, you know, despite what he says, that's just the truth right now. Uh, while Trump is still ahead, is ahead in our CBS battleground polling, you know, we're still nine months out. So. I hear you. Thanks very much, Jake, for the time today. I appreciate it. 
Of course, thank you. Jake Rosen, CBS reporter in New Hampshire. Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 5.30. We are 6.40 Toronto. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.